Go ahead and take out your Bibles, and uh, we're going to go to a couple places. Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. I'm going to read Psalm 103 later, but or in a moment, I should say. And, um, but if you want to follow along, you can kind of see those. Psalm, uh, excuse me, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and then Psalm 8. So I'm going to just read those, and then we'll pray, and we'll, we'll get to our topic of man and sin, the doctrine of man and sin. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now you can flip to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, we'll just read 1 through 9 there. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Note that question. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings or the Elohim. It's like judges, gods, little gods and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and all the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now you can stay there. I'm going to read Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his people. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we come now before you asking that you would aid us as we look to your scriptures. We want to know who you are, and we also want to know who we are. Help us to be in pursuit of a self-consciousness that fights against sin, pursues holiness, and serves the dominion mandate that you have graciously uh, given to us. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So we're finally back in our foundation series after a couple of short breaks, and this morning we're going to dive into the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin, and uh, not necessarily um, as they, uh, you know, the Bible starts with the doctrine of man and, and the goodness of man, and then it kind of moves, we see in Genesis 3, the, the doctrine of sin. Um, so far, just to refresh your memory, we have covered the uh, infallibility, the concept of infallibility as it relates to God and His Word. We looked at the doctrine of the triune God as we understand who God is. Um, I think we were here last time when we did that one. And week three, we talked about creation and providence and the the connection of the biblical worldview of creation and sort of how that applies in the world. And today is week four, and Lord willing, um, as long as the next few weeks go according to plan, nothing seems to be going according to plan, but that's okay. we have a, this series I, I had sectioned off and planned for 10 weeks, so that's the, that's the goal. This is week four. 
Now, understanding the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin is probably one of the more important issues of our day, uh, especially if you look at the world around you. Um, I, think, I think knowing these two doctrines is very, very, very important for today. When you ask questions like, who, what is man or who is man? And then who, who's in charge ultimately? Is it Lord Northam? <laughs> is it, right, and God's people said, no way. Um, uh, who's in charge though? Who's in charge? And not only who's in charge, who does man answer to? That, those are good questions to ask and those kind of tie into the doctrine of man. So those questions are, I, I think, perhaps one of the more pressing questions of the hour, um, given our state of affairs. Does man answer to God, or does he answer to himself, or does he answer just to other men? And your view of creation will obviously affect that. Philosophers from Plato to Socrates, all the way up to, to, to Descartes and, and Kierkegaard and, and Jean-Paul Sartre, he, they have all tried to answer these questions throughout history for thousands of years. Perhaps man is simply just this rational being in an accidental universe. You know, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. I, I, I find myself thinking and rationalizing, therefore that's just, you know, I'm the starting place for everything. That was Descartes' um, position. Um, others, of course, you know, maybe man's actually not rational, and you all are thinking right now, but it's a waste of time. <laughs> you know, maybe man's not really a rational creature, He's actually an epistemological failure. He cannot know anything, and therefore nihilism should be the, the way out, where nothing really matters. Of course, the nihilists are funny because they insist that nihilism is true, but if nihilism is true, then who cares what they say, and why should we listen to you? <laughs> so, self-defeating. Um, others suggest that man simply exists. You know, we just find ourselves in existence, and here we are, and then on the... Uh, the, the tabula rasa, the blank slate that is your, who you are, he just, you, know, you just figure out things as best you can as you go on with your life. And you know, don't try to get too excited about anything, though, because everyone just dies, sort of morbid. But you know, that's the end, and um, everything basically seizes all meaningful existence. Maybe that's the view of man that we should have. Now, views like this are legion. Uh, just go to a college campus. Um, the, the conversations that I've had at George Mason are disturbing um, because they want to argue with me that their view that nothing matters matters. And you just get in this constant presuppositional discussion with people and it's just fascinating because th these are real views that are out there. They are reading men like even Karl Marx and they're, in, um, they're reading these people and, and they find that their view that nothing matters really matters to them. And it's a really troubling thing. Now, depending on one's presuppositions, there is a very real possibility of missing out on the genuine wonder of human existence in God's created world. If apes are our ancestors and we're just a clump of random cells in this closed universe where atoms are racing around haphazardly, then your world and life view will frankly be rather shaky or abysmal. Your, your view of the world, your view of government, your view of, of society will be pretty um, erroneous. And this is because worldviews don't exist in a vacuum. This is sort of one of the foundational principles of presuppositionalism. 
Worldviews don't exist in a vacuum. You, everyone has a worldview. The, the assumptions that we make about our existence, our origins, our essence, right, who we are, our being, and our purpose, and all of those assumptions that we make, they do, in fact, play a role in how we live and what we do. Don't tell me what you believe, show me what you believe, that sort of thing. And that principle works really well on the college campus because they will tell me that nothing matters until they're blue in the face and almost pass out, but they don't see the fact that what you just, if I believe you, then I don't care what you say. So they've lost any, any cogency, any, anything that actually matters in their argument. So these religious pre-commitments, we might call them, they determine things. Religious pre-commitments determine things like law and justice, mercy and holiness. So they, they are the foundations of, uh, they are the foundations on which a social order rests. You can't have a society that makes intelligent sense um, and, and there's order and justice and all these things if your pre-commitments, your religious pre-commitments are shoddy. Can't have it. Now, so keep in mind too, one of the first principles of, of uh, developing a presuppositional worldview, and this is, um, you know, Rush Tooney's taught this, Bonson, it's sort of in our lane, but uh, it's not whether but which. It's not whether but which. It's not whether someone has religious pre-commitments in a society, but which ones will you deploy? Okay, so we can talk all day long about the stupidity of mask mandates and how we're a year into this and everybody still feels like they have to. We had a conversation with a lady yesterday. We were refused service at a couple of places. And um, we're just hoping this gets over. And I said, well, it's going to be over when y'all decide it's over. Because right now, my back hurts carrying this. Okay? Our back. So it's, but again, that's a pre-commitment, right? There are worldviews that are out there that are, and that's where we have to dive deep. It's not just a mask. It's not just a, 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 a passport, a vaccine passport. It's not just these things. There are things underneath it, a view of man that fuels that fire. So I, I just want to consider those texts. We're going to summarize them kind of quickly. And then, because the Bible says a lot about the doctrine of man and sin, and I'm just going to really just summarize it for you. So, all right. In Genesis 1, we learn that God made man in his image and likeness. Okay, children, you are all made in the image and likeness of God. All right? Know that. That's foundational for your who you are. The origin of man is theological. God created. That's the very first thing. In the beginning, God created. Um, our origins are theological. As the crown of God's creative, and let me back up though, the essence of who you are, know this, especially children, but adults, we forget too, but the essence of who you are is the fact that you're made in the image of God. Your being is rooted in that. Okay, everyone else wants to find their essence in some other things. Um, I noticed in the bathroom of a restaurant, there was a sign with flowers that said, hello, beautiful. And I read that and thought, well, hi, how are you? Uh, I appreciate that. But it's, we, and I, I was starting to think like, okay, we have all these, like, I like signage, it's, uh, signage is fine, but we have this sort of, I need someone to I, you know, um, identify me. I need meaning, I need purpose. And so we plaster these signs all over the place Hello, beautiful, here's your cup of coffee or something. I don't know, something cheeky like that. And, but that's because people are looking for meaning. 
right? And the other issue, this has nothing to do with the sermon, by the way. Maybe it does, but uh, the other thing is, perhaps the reason that people think that they need all of these signs in their life is because no one is stopping to listen to them and encourage them. How many of us could be encouraged more every day? Anyway. So man, man, as the crown of, of God's deliberate and creative and wise artwork, that's who we are, man stands in creation entirely distinct from the rest of the created order. And we stand in distinction as kings and priests. Okay, that's the, that's the idea from Genesis 1. The human race is God's image and likeness on the earth. That's who we are. What is man? We are made in the image of God. We are his image and likeness walking on the earth. Genesis 1 and 2, by the way, often confuses people because they seem to be saying the same thing. But let me help you emphasize this because there is a different emphasis. When you read Genesis 1, Genesis 1 highlights for us that man is the purpose of creation. Think about that. What, you know, this is tying into Psalm 8. Man is the purpose of creation. And then you flip your chapter and you go to Genesis chapter 2 and you find out that there's a different emphasis. Man is now the beginning of history. So it's sort of, here's the creation story in Genesis 1, and then here's man. Boom. This is the purpose. God made the world so that man could exist on the world. And then you flip over. Okay, so here's how this works in history. That's how you can make a distinction between those chapters. So, so to be made in the image and likeness of God is what it means to be human. The essence of man's being, what makes man, man, uh, Schaefer called it his mannishness, mannishness, that's a mouthful, mannishness, um, that's exhibiting and reflecting the image and likeness of God. You exhibit the image of God and you are supposed to reflect the image of God. You're not an animal, okay? You shouldn't um, act like one either, <laughs> which, you know, we need to tell a lot of people that, I think. So unlike the animals in the natural world, man and woman both reflect the glory of God. Being created in God's image and likeness means that man corresponds to God. There's an inescapable correlation. Man corresponds to God. God is the, the reference point. God is the starting point. He's the foundation. So any definition of man that doesn't start with our correspondence to God fails every single time. So though we are infinitely beneath God, right? We're infinitely beneath God in the sense that man is created, not creator. So we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks when we talk about covenant. But male and female, though infinitely beneath God, male and female humans mirror God in some capacity. We are supposed to mirror him. Man is, is free and independent in one sense, and yet in another sense he's totally dependent on God in another. So free, yes, there's freedom, but there's limitations too. Man is created in intimate relationship to God, yet man does not understand God fully. So, so you can say that man is like God, absolutely. We're rational people. God is a rational being as well. We're like God, yet we are distinguishable from God. Man images God, but man is not God, and nor is he should ever be confused to be some rival deity. Hence the problem of statism. So we also learn from Genesis as well as Psalm 8 that man has a purpose. Man, all of you children, you have a purpose. Um, man should have dominion over all living things, and he should also spread out over and in the world, 
and the spreading out is meant to be for the process of subduing it. That's the, that's the issue. Um, think of it this way. Man was essentially told to spread out so that he could open up the, the earth to discover the treasures of God contained therein. He was supposed to dig and find granite and make nice countertops. Okay? He was supposed to dig for copper. They do this in northern Zambia. Dig, the Chinese have come in because chi the Chinese make a lot of electronics. You need copper for that. So you dig into the ground, you discover things like copper, and then you make things. That's what man was supposed to do. By doing so, he was to enjoy God's creative handiwork while also making culture. By the way, I'm going to talk about culture in the, in the last the last message of the series, but that's the point. We were supposed to make culture. Culture are simply religious activities that we do in the world. We have religious presuppositions and we do them and then we make culture. So man was created in order to create. Man was created in order to create. And note in Genesis 1, and it's also echoed in Psalm 8 as well, that man and woman were made lower than gods, lower than judges. Um, and as God's image, we're supposed to have authority, but it's always a subordinate authority under God. Now, <clears throat> I want you to catch this, so make sure you're, you're listening. I'll, I'll repeat myself if necessary, but the Bible says in Genesis 1, and it's also in, in Psalm 8, that man was giving a, given a twofold task, so don't miss this. He was told, one, to work and keep the garden, to work and keep it. That means to cultivate and preserve the garden. That was one of his tasks. Second task that he was told, he was to eat freely of everything in the garden except one thing, children. What was the thing Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat? The tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. Good. You're here. You're paying attention. This is glorious. You're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Have everything you want. All the luscious oranges, you can have the, anything, okay? Get yourself some cashews if you want, or cashews, depending on your particular phraseology of that. Now, um, Herman Bovink, the theologian, he pointed out that the first command, the first command to preserve and work in the garden describes his relationship to the earth. He had an earthly task. The second command eat of everything except for the one tree, describes his relationship to heaven. The first is man's relationship to the earth. The second is his relationship to heaven. So as God's man, he's to create, he's to enjoy, he's to explore. You're supposed to go and explore things. Go to Mars, I guess, if you really want to. But as God's man, he is also to protect the earth from evil. That's part of what it mean, meant to work and keep the garden, to preserve the garden, to cultivate the garden, to make sure that he's on guard from any potential threats. Um, as we know from Genesis 3, that, that comes up. So man, man is not supposed to be idle in his calling. He's not supposed to be passive in his purpose. Um, so many people today just lack that purpose. They're just running around working and buying things and ready to die at any point, you know, and there's no real thing that drives them in life, nothing that drives them for working and glorifying God and having a family and, and teaching the same thing to your children. So man and woman were to, were to have dominion over the earth. They were to utilize their minds, their hearts, their hands to cultivate and expand the beauty of God's world. 
That's what they were supposed to do. Essentially, Adam was told, with the help of his wife, to rule over the creation as a king and a priest under God. But in order to rule appropriately, he had to be a self-giving servant. He could not be pompous, he could not be arrogant, he could not be self-centered. He had to be under God. Working, resting, ruling, serving, building, creating, guarding, worshiping, everything we're supposed to be doing, all of that in service to heaven was the culture-building task of man, what we call the dominion covenant, the dominion mandate. It's a shame that people can spend their entire lives in a church and never hear the phrase dominion mandate or dominion covenant. As a servant of heaven, man was to animate the entire scope of life by applying the ethics of God's law to things like farming, business, economics, and entrepreneurship. More on that in the last week. And so let me just sort of summarize it here. Crowned with glory and honor. Absolutely, that's the language of Psalm 8. Crowned with glory and honor, man is God's vice regent. He is man's vice regent. Um, excuse me, man is, is God's vice regent. And he's also an agent in the expansion of beauty, goodness, and truth in the world. What is your purpose? I just told you. You're God's vice regent. You are to expand the beauty, the truth of God, and the goodness of God in the world. And that looks like a million different things. You just have to decide what God has put in your heart, what has he skilled you with, and then you go from there. Now, that's the doctrine of man. We all know the, the great challenge of Genesis 1 and 2 is actually what we find in the problem of Genesis 3. This inexorable entrance of sin and death and decay into God's good world. Now, sin, we need to define it. Sin, biblically defined, is a religious problem before it's a sociology problem. People today, anthropologists, sociologists, they want to look at the problems around us. And this is, in part, some of the issues surrounding critical race theory. And while there can be some advantageous things we can learn from those things, ultimately sin is a theological problem, a religious problem, before it's an anthropological or sociological problem. Um, you, <laughs> it's, it's actually a theological problem long before it's a philosophical problem. Look, there's injustice. Well, what is the meaning of injustice? <laughs> well, you have to start with God if you want to know the answer. Now, think about it, sin in this way, considered in a negative sense. Sin, according to 1 John 3, 4, sin is the violation of God's law. Very simple definition. Kids, what is sin? Got it. Rock and roll. F front row, you are on it. Good job. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 14, says that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. In other words, sin may be the fact that you did something you shouldn't have, but it also, sin may be you didn't do something you were supposed to do. We call it sins of omission or sins of commission. Now, sin is the, this obstreperous, this, the, the, these loud and boisterous and frustrating actions of man in which he not only casts aside his calling, everything I told you about your calling, you, casting it aside, but you also end up crossing a moral boundary. There's a moral boundary of God's law. Two Greek words. Sin is anomia. Um, nomos is the Greek word for law. You throw the word, letter A in front of it. It's the opposite. It's lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is also harmartia. It is missing the mark of righteousness. 
You're supposed to be um, doing this thing and treating this person this way, and you missed the mark, the bullseye, and you treated them in a poor way, and you talk smack about them, gossip about them, all this other stuff, right? You missed the mark of righteousness. That would be harmartia. Now, by the way, I should add that Christians, true regenerate Christians, can never be um, anomia, uh, lawless. You can't be lawless. But sometimes regenerate Christians can be harmartia. Sometimes we do commit actual sins, uh, things like um, gossip or false witness or theft or, or those types of things. So, so sin itself, it's, this, it's a power of darkness that we humans sometimes just give ourselves over to. But it's also a rebellious and treasonous action. It could be something as so simple as you thought a terrible thing about that person. You didn't even say it. But in your heart, you murdered them. That's what Jesus says about hatred in your heart. You killed them. You had hatred in your heart in that moment, and you killed. And those little sins, by the way, if they, they'll pile up, and then you start tripping over them, and then everybody else starts tripping over them, and then we have this cascade problem of, of sin. So it's a rebellious and treasonous action, but it's also the affirmation of all that contradicts the law of God. Let me give you an example. The person who commits adultery not only breaks the marriage covenant, he or she also affirms that the anti-covenant way of life is a good and positive thing. Right? That's just one example among, and among many. So it's a revolt against God. Yes, it's a revolt against God, but it's also simultaneously the apprehension of immorality. Okay? Um, think about the 60s and the sexual revolution. What did you have? It made such an impact in our culture. What did you have? You had people being told... They bought this bill of goods that said, you can be free. You can be liberated. You know, the confines of marriage, that's just ancient religion. You can be free, liberated to express yourself. But what, what end up hap- what, well, what's the end of that? What ends up happening is you are now a slave of sin. It promised freedom, but it gave you slavery. Now, when Adam and Eve first saw the revolution in the garden, which was transpiring before their eyes... Um, before Adam's eyes, we often wonder, well, what should Adam have done? Well, I'll tell you what he should have done. He should have crushed the serpent's head right there and then. Could have been his foot, could have been a tool that he was told to make. He should have crushed the serpent's head after, after Eve had partaken. He should have refused the fruit, right? He should have taken his wife straight to God and said, God put me to death and not her. And you might think, well, why would you come up with that? Well, that's because that's exactly what Jesus did. He crushed the serpent's head and took his wife straight to God and said, kill me instead of her. That's what sin, how it should have been done. But instead, we know the story. Adam partook of, of it. Both of them believed in that moment that the lie, they believed the lie of the serpent. Paul says in Romans 1 that they believed, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. By believing the lie of the serpent, they inverted the situation and they assumed that what he was saying was true. But it was not. Sin, of course, then, we all know the story. Uh, They made fig leaves for themselves because they experienced shame for the first time. Um, God's walking in the garden. They had intimacy with God, but he's hiding. So there's this clear, you know, disruption of their relationship. And Adam, where are you? As if God doesn't know. It's sort of, you know, 
when your child plays hide and seek and they're really little and they're just doing this. Where are you? I, <laughs> this is the best spot ever behind my hands. Um, that was the Adam moment in the garden. So um, that sin, of course, corrupted man. It robbed him of his innocence. It robbed him of his righteousness. It robbed Adam and Eve of their holiness and their beauty. It corrupted their being. It darkened their minds. It polluted their hearts. Um, Adam and Eve, the great sin, by the way, Genesis 3, 5, the great sin was that Adam and Eve wanted to know and determine good and evil on their own autonomous terms and conditions. And in doing so, they placed their members in service of the accuser, in service of death, in service of immorality. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself because I'm going to deal with this more fully next Sunday, Lord willing, when we talk about Christ and atonement. But this newfound condition of man, after the expulsion in the garden, of the garden, from the garden, it didn't mean that man surrendered his calling or his purpose, and nor did he stop being in the image and likeness of God. Rather, it meant that he needed to be born again. He needed to be justified. He needed to be set right by and for God. He needed to be sanctified. He needed to be cleansed. And that's what Christ the second Adam does by establishing this new human race right smack dab in the middle of history. But that'll be next week. Now, think of it this way. Just because man sinned doesn't mean that he stopped being a moral, rational being responsible for everything he says and does. Though he was uh, bereft of the fullness of the image of God and thus he was corrupted and he was inclined to do lawlessness and evil, man is still God's man. You are still God's person, male and female. And God deals with us accordingly. Um, so think of it like this. Sin may be this revolt from God, but you can never escape God. You can never escape God. So sin is this pollution, the um, um, adulteration of glory. It's the falling short of the glory of God. Um, scripture teaches that all men and women fall short of the glory of God. Right? We're conceived and born in sin. That's Psalm 51. From our youth, we prefer unrighteousness. Those of you who have children, you know that you never had to teach them to say the word no. Right? You never did. You didn't have to say, okay, here's what you do when you want to refuse my command. You need to say no. No one is taught that, right? Job 14.4 says that no one can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing. Being born into this condition and propensity to rebellion, man is engulfed in sin and the entirety of his being is affected. His heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17.9. His heart is the source of all pollution. Jesus tells us that in Mark 7. His mind is th and his thinking is futile and corrupted as a result. That's Romans 1. With debased minds and divided hearts, that's 1 Kings 18, man's will is thus powerless to fight against sin. So you need to know that sin defiles your conscience, right? As a result, your bodies are inclined to, to evil. It's just so much fun. We like to do it. We like to hurt other people. It, sin is enticing. It entices your, everything about you. So sin is thus this dead in sin's person's condition and longing for everything that's not God. Don't lie. Nobody should lie. Why do you lie? Why shouldn't you lie? Because God doesn't lie. God always speaks truth, right? Why shouldn't 
you um, do other sins and, and these types of respectable sins that we sort of just play off. Well, because God doesn't act like that. Jesus didn't act like that. Now, the world at the moment is drunk on its own autonomous lusting. When man departs from the order that is God's world, God's calling, and God's purpose, he finds himself at the center of his self-consciousness. Rather than running to God for forgiveness and new life, man who sins, the sinful man, buries himself inward, dwindling himself down into the abyss of pride and self-delusion. He, he never loses this ineradicable sense of his existence. Man will always come along. The most rebellious of men will always know, I exist, there is a world, what now? You never lose that sense. No one ever loses that. Man has to deal with who he is. He reasons, he feels things, he experiences things, he senses and sees the world around him. He sees that the, you know, the sunset is a remarkable, beautiful thing. He, he, he experiences all this goodness, and yet something isn't right. He's made in the image of God, by the way, as is the worst abortionist doctor out there, is made in the image of God. But being, a, being in the image of God means that we have a personality. We have a purpose. He can laugh. He can cry. He can long for retirement. He can, and so on. So the unregenerate know these things. When you're talking to an unbeliever about the gospel, they know these things. They know them. Their, their existence didn't come from blind chance or some unconscious force known as the universe. You know, you walk in and you're a disheveled mess. Oh, the universe just hated me this week. Who is the universe and where might I speak with him? Right? That didn't, that's not how it works. Darkened minds will come to these erroneous postulations like this, but we know nature and scripture both attest to the fact that men and women exist as self-conscious persons who know things and who will things. And this is because God is totally self-conscious. He's entirely omniscient. He knows who he is. He's comfortable with who he is. He doesn't have to long for something that's not him. And above all, he's a personal God. John 1.3 tells us that all things, and material included, have their existence because the word of God did it. It's inescapable. And here's the thing. Um, don't miss this because I've talked a little bit about relationships and interpersonal things. But it's not just that man has the ability, or, uh, the capability to express you know, we, we can express our love towards someone, we can express our hate, we can express our desire, we can will things towards others. It's not just that that's a possibility. The image, the image of God in man goes farther than merely assuming that we have some level of self-consciousness. I'm here, that person's hurting, I can speak encouragement into them. That's great, but there's something more that's there. What matters, though, is what we love. What do we love? What is it that we hate? Do we hate the right things? What is it that we desire? What is the object, in other words? So we're supposed to have this proper ethical grid in place so we know how to answer that question. What am I supposed to love? What am I supposed to hate? What do I desire? Right? What, what am I supposed to do with the fact that I can experience those things and I can and feel those things? To love, said Thomas Aquinas, is to will the good of the other. If you want to love someone, you have to will the good of the other. Now note what's at stake here. 
The object is at stake, the other person, right? The action is there too, the willing of good. Is it willing the good of other to slander them? No. It's willing the good of the other to encourage them, to, to pray for them, those things. So we should do this as God's creatures. We know we should do those things. But sin contorts, it exploits, and it twists both the object and the action. So two things go wrong. Not only do I not have the, will of the willing of the good of the other person, the object, I'm not even willing good. I'm just being a hater. Two things break down. Now, final couple quick thoughts. <clears throat> Far too many Christians today fail to make the connection between man as a creature and man as a creature who is a doer. James says to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And I take this to mean that we ought not to stop at simply believing the fact that God made us. Oh, God made me. Great. And nothing else matters or connects. God didn't just make you, children. God didn't just make you. He purposed you. You, were, you, were, you are here intentionally. Okay? Yeah, your parents were involved, but God brought you here. You're, you, you, you know, your parents gave you a name, and, but the fact that you have a, a, a heart that's beating in your chest and brains and mental faculties that are at work all the time, you are here as a person because God wanted you to be here. That's what he wanted. He purposed. You're not this cosmic accident, which is what the Darwinian nutjobs at college will tell you you are. Okay? You're not that. You're, you're here. The reason that Adam and Eve were told to expand the garden was so that we could cultivate, so we could build, and so that God's attributes could be on further display. That's what we were supposed to do. Beauty and art, things like the sciences. You know, some of you are more scientific driven. You, you, you may be a chemistry guy, or you, you, maybe you're more like you, li- you like astronomy, you like the stars, you like those things. Or maybe, maybe, and there's only a few of us here that really just love math, okay? And some of you, you, you hate it and you don't even like the word math. It's, it's in your not to say words, along with other ones, profanities. <laughs> but all of those things are, are not to be pursued for the sake of knowledge. Aha, I'm a brilliant person. I, I have the whole periodic table memorized. No, you do it for the sake of God being honored in the earth, in the human race. Um, Sir Francis Bacon said, I don't know how you, if that's how you pronounce his name. It could be like Bacon, I don't know, but it's spelled Bacon. It's his last name. He said this, he said, man by the fall fell at the same time from his state of innocence and from his dominion over nature. Both of, those, both of these losses, however, can even in this life be in some part repaired. Your state of innocence and your dominion over nature. The former by religion and faith, the latter by the arts and sciences. In other words, history is this sanctifying process whereby man is restored to his dominion calling and by virtue of the death, resurrection, and present session of King Jesus, he is given everything he needs to accomplish the task. Some of you are super into lizards and I already know Nathan wants to have a lizard store. We picked it out downtown. He's got some renovations to do. But man, for the glory of God, he's going to sell, buy, sell, and trade lizards. And what a glorious calling that is, because lizards, though freaky, are cool and may not be your thing, but don't judge him. We'll talk later if that happens. No. <laughs> I love 
But some of you, especially you children, you, you know, you have to find out what God has put in your heart and you need to do it for the glory of God. And, 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 and some of our girls here, you're going to, you're just, you're going to be this awesome housewife who's going to, who, who's going to um, homeschool your kids. Right. And that's probably the top of the line, as I mentioned last week, top of the line of callings in your life. And you're going to make the best chocolate cake. You're going to make some awesome homemade Chinese food, right? But, and you're going to honor God in those moments. So one last thing, God didn't create man so that he would spend his entire existence studying himself and gazing upon himself. Rather, he was made to serve and glorify God by being a faithful covenant member, subduing the world and having dominion over the gift God has given him. That's what you're supposed to do. So we don't wish for dominion. We have it in Christ. God has given it to us. So this great task of discipling the nations by baptizing them and teaching them to obey Christ the Lord, it's our task. And guess what? God intends for us to accomplish it. Amen. He does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and, and there are so many um, things that we could, we could say and ask for, but I do simply come and ask, especially for our children today, that you would... Um, teach them and grow them so that they would um, be mature, so that they would be um, not tossed around by every wind of doctrine, but that they would be anchored in the truths of your word, that they would discover uh, the things that you have put in their hearts, the calling that you have on their lives. Um, would, would you help us as parents to help navigate that as, as we are busy and as we're working and, and as we're trying to um, push back the tyranny, push back the darkness, um, it's a lot to do, Father, but man, you, what a glorious task that you've given us. It seems impossible, but it truly is beautiful. So would you help us by your spirit today? In Christ's name, amen.